Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. With me today is financial advisor Jody Lynn Craven. This is your Daily Dose of Happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. Now, of course, you all know Jody Lynn is a financial advisor and uh, she is on the show primarily because that's how she, she came to us, but also because she's wonderful and she also has a great grasp on a lot of the topics we talk about here. But lately, Wednesdays have become medical Wednesdays because last week we had a children's chiropractor named Dr. Vic Manza back for actually for a second visit. And this week we have an orthopedist joining us today. So I, I don't know. We, we got a theme going on here, Jody. Have you figured this yeah. out? No, that's exactly what I was thinking when I saw the email of who was going to be on the show. I was like, wow, it's become Doctor's Wednesday. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Doug, Doug, Doug Lucas, who is an orthopedic surgeon. And he has a, a rather interesting story. We, we, we often talk here on the show about um, health-related stuff. And when we do, often the conversation gets into mainstream medicine versus alternative medicine and all that kind of thing. And we, we don't encounter in life a lot of people in the, in the uh, mainstream medical community who embrace anything in the alternative community. So when you encounter somebody who does that, it's like, oh, it's, it's like an eye-opener. And, and that's exactly what the case is with uh, Dr. Lucas. So, Dr. Doug, thank you for joining us today. How are you today, first of all? I'm doing wonderful, and uh, thanks for having me on, Walt. And, and give us a little bit of that background. How how did you end up uh, – my God, did, did you actually, like, break a, a rule somewhere in the medical community? You went outside the norm? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been shunned. No, that's not true. <laughs> So, I um, be surprised. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, we can, we can talk about the reaction to this, this move, which has been interesting, but yeah, I'm traditionally trained as an orthopedic surgeon. I went through all of that, the traditional, you know, medical school, five years of residency, a year of fellowship, uh, you know, focusing on orthopedic surgery with the goal of, you know, practicing traditional orthopedics. Um, and I did that for seven years. What really drew me away from it was my experience through, Talking to my patients, once I got into practice, really understanding, you know, what my patients were going through and why they ended up in my office and recognizing that so much of what they were there for didn't need to actually happen. Wow. You know, and by the time they got to me, we didn't really have very many choices, you know, other than, okay, let's operate. But especially in the foot and ankle world, you know, we can make things different. We can make things better, but it is way better to prevent it if you can. And so that's why I shifted that focus. And part of what helped me to do that was my wife, while I was going through medical school, she got her PhD in nutrition. And when I started practice, she started a, a business in, uh, in weight loss and, and nutrition optimization. And when she first told me, Hey, I reversed my, my client's diabetes. I, I looked at her like she was nuts because that's not what we're taught, right? Yeah. You can't, you can't do that. Um, and, um, and, uh, as usual, she was right. And, <laughs> and we started kind of looking into the research together. Cause at that point there wasn't a lot of good evidence behind mm -hmm. you know, actually doing that and taking that approach. And, um, and she was really reversing diabetes and yet I was seeing these patients that had diabetes and, you know, they had terrible disease, but they were following all the recommendations and taking their medications. And yet they still needed surgery after surgery and potentially even losing their leg. And so that really catapulted me into looking into what what else is out there and how can I potentially educate people in a different way? That's fabulous. I'm, I, I congratulate you, first of all, for taking that leap. That's because there, let's be honest, there is a significant amount of pressure within 
the mainstream medical community to not go beyond the edges. And, and you took that leap. That, so congratulations for doing that. Thank you. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. When I would talk to my peers about, you know, hey, I'm thinking about doing this or I want to learn more about, you know, hormones is another good topic to talk about. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. I want to, you know, why, why aren't we, why are we so afraid of this thing and why aren't we doing that? You know, they do, they look at me, they're like, dude, just do your job. You know, mm. like just you be happy with what you're doing. You know, you got a great, you got a great thing going. You're getting paid well. Just do your job. Um, and that always rubbed me the wrong way. Um, because you're right. I could just put my head down and do my job and, and make the money that we were making, which was good. Sure. Um, but I was, I wasn't happy. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't in a place where I felt like I was doing my best service to those around me. Mm. That, that's an interesting question too about the, the, well, not so much a question, more of a topic, I guess, about that, that, that sort of circle, the, the inner circle that, uh, you're not supposed to breach the boundaries of. And I guess, I guess the question I'd like to ask you is why do you think there is so much resistance and what do you think it's going to take for that boundary to expand? Ooh. Um, I mean, within the medical community, there is uh, over the last several decades, as the hospital systems have gotten bigger and the insurance companies have, have gained control um, in the, the pharmaceutical companies, there is less and less interest in physicians thinking outside of the box. Um, you know, the, the system is built around us as widget makers making widgets. And if we are noisy, they don't like it. Um, and it's really unfortunate because it has, we've created a system where physicians are, they're given a lot of information. Most of it's outdated by the time they start practice, but they're given a lot of information. <laughs> and then they're that, given that's guidelines. That's really encouraging, practice. I have to say. I mean, my God. Oh, a it's, lot of well, it's just, and it's not their fault. And it's not even the medical yeah. school's fault either. You know, the curriculums are created the way they are. And there is such a tremendous amount of information to provide that it, it really is an impossible task. Mm. But the system is built to sort of put up the guardrails and say, well, there's so much information, so we're going to give you guidelines to practice. We're going to subspecialize everybody because there's so much information. And then none of us know anything about any other field, and we really can't do anything else, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, as, as an orthopedic surgeon, I was in such a narrow box that I didn't even know, you know, what my hand partner did, who did almost the exact same training except wow. a different fellowship, wow. right? And he, he's doing surgeries that I've never heard of. You know, so imagine, you know, where I'm start, when I start talking about things that are, that are happening in the endocrinology office or things that are happening, you know, in the OBGYN office and people look at me like, dude, you, you just, you like, you don't know enough. And they were right. I didn't know enough, but I got more training. And that's part of the secret, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. Ask more yeah. questions, but then, but then get it from the right sources, you know? And so that's why I did two fellowships as I was making that transition out. You're actually doing a nice job of, of answering another question that's been in the back of my mind. And actually, I've been bringing it to the forefront a little bit lately. And that is uh, medical, the medical community, medical sciences is based in, in at least theory and often in practice on science. And the thing that has struck me for the longest time is that there is so much that gets done within the medical community that starts with science and then makes some assumptions and turn that into a protocol. And I don't quite get, I mean, I do get that because you can't have, there's, there's no way to, to have enough information. You just, you're constantly chasing information. And, and so I get that part. I guess the part that I have trouble with is, okay, that goes on, but anybody else who goes a little bit loose on the evidence, oh no, they get a different standard applied. That, that's the part I have trouble understanding. 
Yeah, it's it's a huge challenge because we we do say in the medical community, where you know, where is the evidence? Follow the evidence. Right. But if you look at the way we treat our patients, so much of what we treat, so much of how we treat rather is based off of dogma. It's based off of, you know, traditions passed on from generation to generation that was never based on evidence in the first place. Mm. Wow. So many of the things, or I, sh I shouldn't say never, I should say that it was based on evidence at the time, which probably wasn't very good because we didn't do good studies. You know, if you go mm. back 50 years, you know, how many, how many double blind placebo controlled trials were conducted in the 1940s? Not mm. many. Not many at you know, all. And yet that's where a lot of our, a lot of our protocols are, are still passed on from, from generation to generation. And it's hard to get past that dogma. It's hard to, to question the way that your trainer trained you. And that's why we, we do, we, we as we're, we're trained to look for, okay, well, where is the good evidence to say that I shouldn't do it this way? But the problem with that is that a lot of the things that, especially in the world that I live in now, these studies will never be done. You know, the studies that are going to refute some of the, the hormone studies that said that hormones were dangerous, you know, it, mm -hmm. the studies to refute that will never be done because pharmaceutical companies aren't going to make those drugs. So there's no funding to do it. Or where is the studies on the nutraceuticals, you know, the, in the supplement world, such a challenge because there's just not enough money to be made to fund a billion dollar study to prove that, that this one thing does what we think it does. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we look to say, well, where is, where is the evidence that what you're doing is the right thing to do? And I say, well, we use the, we use the best science that we have, but then you have to use your training and you have to, you have to try to put it together on a person to person basis. But then to say that that is, that is a, a faulty model, but then go back to doing the dogma that was based on an expert opinion from 1920. I, you know, I don't know that that's better. Yeah. And so it, it is, it's a really challenging way that, that I struggle with because I am, I'm doing things that are outside of, of the box, obviously, but I still communicate with traditional healthcare providers. So, you know, when I'm, when a patient tells me that, oh, well, their primary care doctor, you know, doesn't want them to do, to do this thing because it's not in the guidelines, you know, will you chat with them? It's like, Ooh, well, I can, um, I'm not going to convince them otherwise though. Mm -hmm. They just don't understand. Yeah. But it does raise a very interesting problem. And I think you, you very eloquently expressed it, which is the only uh, entities that can afford to do studies anymore are pharmaceuticals, right. which is going to yeah. pretty much limit what you're going to study. Or the federal and, government, yeah. Well, or the federal government, yeah, okay. to a lesser extent. But uh, certainly there's at least some funding that goes on there. But nevertheless, most of it is going to come through pharmaceuticals. So it, it kind of raises a question about the gold standard of the double-blind placebo study, right? Right. Because if you're only going to go through one entity, then I guess, how would I phrase the question? How much can we rely on double blind studies? Yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt that if you want to prove that, that an intervention does something, it's the best way to do it. But you have to then address the reality. And this is where, you know, the, the blanket statement of, you know, follow the science. Where's the science? Well, you have to really understand the science, which is, you know, what is a placebo controlled study? It implies that there is a placebo that you can actually give to somebody. And a lot of the things, you know, in a pharmaceutical world, yeah, you can give somebody a placebo, right? You give them a capsule with nothing in it and yeah, it's a placebo. Um, but what about procedures? How do you show mm. that? How do you do a sham surgery? How do you do, you know, sham acupuncture? How do you do sham chiropractic manipulation? Like your last guest, right? Like when you lay hands on somebody, you're doing something, you're imparting energy to that person. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to prove through that model that some of these things work, but there are lots of other ways to do research 
but the person that, you know, the, the snobby research consumer will say, well, that's not a placebo controlled trial, you know, <laughs> and turn <laughs> their nose up accurate. at it. Um, and, and, you know, I just say, well, you're right. And, you know, and you don't have to do it. Uh, but, you know, I treat my patients based off of evidence from other things. And, you know, you can look at, you know, prospective studies that are, that are cohort and not placebo controlled trials and learn things. You know, there are other ways that you can learn about the effect of consuming something or taking something or doing something without having a placebo control trial. And, and, and plus there's another part of the whole placebo issue that, that I find to be fascinating. And, and I'm, I have to admit, I'm kind of, on the one hand, I'm not surprised. On the other hand, I'm kind of distraught that nothing is actually being investigated in this area in that uh, I, I actually had a placebo researcher on the program one time about, uh, actually it was right after the start of the pandemic. And she was talking about a COVID related, uh, research she was doing. I said, oh, this is so exciting. Well, she couldn't tell me about it because she was in the middle of it. Um, but I was really, really excited to find out what was going to be. I had to wait a year, found out a year later, it was about pain relief. And mm-hmm. I have to admit, I was a bit disappointed because I, what I really want to hear and hear about is research into the power of the human mind to make yourself sick or to make yourself well. Oh, and yeah. it all seems to be related to just pain relief, which is understandable. I mean, that's where the whole idea of the placebo came from. It came from, you know, World War II. They didn't have enough, what was it, morphine to treat the soldiers. So they gave them fake morphine and they felt better. Um, so yeah, I get the pain relief side, but isn't there like a whole lot more that could be explored there? Oh yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny that people, when people ask me about, especially certain things that have a very low risk threshold, you know, cause I, I deal in the world of hormones and the world of peptides and the world of supplements. And, um, people say, well, you know, this, is there really good evidence behind it? And, and, you know, frequently in the back of my mind, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, the likelihood that a placebo is going to have a positive effect is between 30 and 50%. Um, so if this is a very safe placebo that helps them, I'm actually okay with that. Right. Because you're, you're just helping somebody to wrap their mind around the fact that something is helping them. Now, mm-hmm. I would prefer, like, as you said, I mean, if you could just, just deal with the mind, that would be great. But, but not many people are open to that, you know, mm-hmm. to just say that, you know, just <laughs> somehow you say you, you actually don't have pain, you know, or let's, let's talk about what that pain means. You know, what is it? What do you mean by pain? Um, pain's a tough one. Um, but we do see it change without, actually changing anything physically, right? I mean, there is so much of an emotional and mental component to it. So yeah, I would love to be able to, to manipulate that more than I do. Um, but I would, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that there's some component of, of placebo in, in what I do, you know, obviously I don't want it to be all of it, uh, but it's probably there. I would think it would have sure. to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm, your belief system too would play into it a lot as well. I would think, you know, your belief that it actually works. You said, you know, your energy when you're laying hands on someone else, it's not about like even just the, the physical of seeing, you know, the chiropractor and hearing the chiropractor adjust you or the acupuncturistic needles in you or whatever, or you go into surgery and maybe they don't actually do anything for you, but it's also a component of your energy and you're a part of that process too. And I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think what's really interesting as a a parallel to that is people have questions too about, you know, we are, I'm in a a fully virtual space now, you know, and so I'm not physically laying hands on people, even though I'm, I'm, you know, trained to do it like as a DO, you know, I'm trained to lay hands on people. Um, But I think that even virtually you can still impart, there is an energy that, that you can communicate just, just through your eyes and through your, your movements. And, you know, I see that in my patients and they, they, 
they tell me that, you know, in their, in their follow-ups, you know, just that the interaction, the conversation, I mean, there is a way to, to impart energy through, through the internet, which I really don't know how that works. Um, but, <laughs> I but, love hearing your doctor say that. That's great. Yeah. I have no idea how that works, but it's, but I mean, cause I do hear people that say, well, you know, you, you shouldn't practice exclusively through telehealth because there's so much that you learn by being in front of somebody. And, and it's true. You certainly can learn by being in front of somebody. Um, but I can treat people across the country. Um, and they're not going to get to me otherwise. Mm-hmm. So let's talk think, about that some more. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Andy. No, I was just going to add to that. I, when, um, because I have a financial brokerage and then I have a coaching company and with the financial brokerage, when the pandemic happened, everything went virtual and yeah. it was going from sitting kneecap to kneecap with somebody at a kitchen table where you could feel their energy. And that was a lot of my, a lot of the teaching that I gave to my agents and my brokerage business is to understand people's energy and, you know, when you can move forward and when you need to stop and build that connection right there with them. And it's a new learning process when you're sitting in front of a screen. It's possible, but it's almost like a new skill set that you're learning how to read their energy or feel that and get the same information as you would if you were sitting right beside them. I think that's super interesting. It is, it is totally a skill set, you know, and the, all the behaviors that were taught, you know, the, the things you do to be polite in person, it's almost an, an entirely different skill set, but it is a different skill set. You know, how, how do you act on screen? (laughs) And you've turned that into, like you said, you, you don't even see people in person anymore. You're doing everything remotely telehealth as you're calling it, which I think is what a lot of the medical profession calls it. And mm-hmm. it, it's really getting very big. I mean, there are a lot of doctors now that are, my, my wife has been interacting with her doctors online. I usually have to help her get the iPad going. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, that's actually been a thing. So tell us how that's been going for you. Yeah. I mean, it, so when I, when I had the idea of creating this company, it, it wasn't going to be fully telehealth. Um, in fact, I had it all dreamed up in my head of what the location would look like and the services we would offer. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. Uh, but it was expensive. <laughs> and so, you know, when the telehealth law started changing uh, around, you know, 20, 2020, um, I recognized this opportunity to say, well, I don't actually need a physical space, you know, and, and I think now that the cat's out of the bag, I don't think the cat's going back in the bag. Mm-hmm. Um, the states are, it's always changing, you know, so I have an, I have an entire law firm that is constantly updating laws to make sure that we're following every state law. Cause we're, you know, we're across the country, like I said, and, um, that's a challenge, but ultimately, as long as we can stay within the guardrails that are put up, um, yeah, I think it's such a great way to, to reach as many people as possible. And that's part of our mission, you know, is, is to reach as many people as possible. And that gives us through our own program, but then also through, you know, social media outlets, et cetera. So, so we're really pushing the boundaries as far as what we can push out, um, in a responsible way. Um, and, and you said that, that this, the, the law started to change in 2020 and I'm not really familiar with that. Give us like the lay of that land. Yeah. So, so before 2020, um, coming from CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, you could not initiate, um, a, a physician patient relationship through a telehealth visit, oh. meaning that you had, you had to physically see the person. Okay. Um, and I'm not actually familiar with what happened from there because that, especially as an orthopedic surgeon, like I couldn't do anything through telehealth, you know, so there was no point in me knowing what that, ex- what, what existed beyond that. Because of, because of the pandemic, they, they made that shift and removed that rule. And so then you could create a physician patient relationship through a telehealth visit. And then that, that opens up the door. 
right? And so now there are multiple nationwide telehealth companies, you know, some some big, well-funded companies, and then a lot of smaller companies like myself that are spreading their arms to people across the country. So now, now we have the ability to do that. It's just a matter of staying up to date with the state laws and making sure that you are abiding by the rules, which are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Which is a challenge, I'm sure, all by itself. It's an expensive one, yeah. I would think, yeah, <laughs> because they don't make it easy. They never make it easy, unfortunately. <laughs> well, they don't tell us, right? You don't. You don't get a letter that says that we changed this rule that affects you. No, no. Um, you, we have to. We have to be proactive and and be looking for it and making sure that we're we're abiding by all the laws. But we do. Yeah. Because uh, heaven forbid you should actually understand any of them. I mean, that, that's yeah. really not part of the. Or that program. there's any sort of like disclosure yeah. of anything. Like they change any other law, they're going to just disclose it somehow. Like what happened to disclosure? <laughs> yeah, no, they leave it up to us, which is fine. We do it, which is yeah. admirable. We're, we're very glad that uh, people like you are doing exactly that kind of thing. So tell us a little bit about what the experience has been. You've, you've made this transition. You've got this company going. It actually is going in a way that wasn't quite what you originally envisioned, but it's now, I guess you're 100% online now. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, so we do have a location. I actually have, it's really more of a headquarters um, mm-hmm. that's, that's close to me here in, in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, so I, I do have the capacity to see people in person. Um, okay. So I think that that does actually put us in a different category. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for the most part, we're telehealth and, uh, I would say it's going really well. You know, we've kind of found our niche, uh, in certain patient populations. Um, and I've found some opportunities in other patient populations that I'm really excited about expanding into. Um, but I, you know, my team is, is nationwide. I mean, I'm, I'm able to search broadly for the right people, uh, which makes it really fun. And we have a really great team and that's probably one of the biggest differences I find when I get reviews from my patients or, you know, when people reach out to me personally and say, Hey, I just want to let you know how things are going. Typically it's that response, which is I'm, I'm blown away by how well you guys are able to take care of me. A, because you're not a, you know, we don't, you don't have a physical space that, that I go to, but B, because your, your team just cares so much and, and there oh, isn't a single great. thing that I can, that I can throw at them that they don't have a, an amazing response to. So that's, that's, nice. that's really been the big shift versus, Looking locally, I mean, Asheville is not that big, you know, and finding the right person is is always a challenge if you have a pool of a very small, uh, sure. um, very small pool of applicants. Yeah, it all totally makes sense. It, it's really interesting, too. I mean, if we look at this from the perspective of, of how a traditional practice would we put together a, a practice in a specialty such as orthopedics, um, you would probably almost, especially under the uh, the, the current uh, HMO type model that we're under, um, everything would have been a referral. You would have been, you know, all patients would have been referred to you by a primary care physician. But I'm wondering, is that still true, or do you find yourself getting patients from other quarters? Yeah, I mean, so I my patient um, patient acquisition streams. I mean, I have to do my own marketing, so that that's a new that's a new skill. Yeah, I love, um, how about that? Yeah, so um, yeah, I was very much in a referral network. You know, part of a big practice, and people came in, and I was the foot and ankle specialist, and I did general work and took call to hospitals. So that's where patients came from. Now, um, my wife's business, which is still you know doing well, and she sees lots of people. Um, I see people coming coming out on the other end of that business after they've lost, uh, you know, finished their weight loss journey, and then have questions about hormone optimization, thyroid, you know, peptides, all that stuff. So we can we can put them through a program if they're interested in that. Um, but then also, really, it's been a lot of word of mouth for the health optimization side. You know, because people are looking for it. Um, 
but it's hard to market to. Mm-hmm. So it's been a lot of word of mouth, uh, really me getting out there and, and banging on virtual doors like this. Okay. Um, the other side of it though, is actually working with the, this kind of newer, newer group that I'm really excited about, which is the bone health group. And I think that people that struggle with osteoporosis, osteopenia that have had fragility fractures, this is a group where what we do through the health optimization side can easily be manipulated to help people figure out why they're losing bone, how to stop losing bone and reversing osteoporosis, which is not done in the traditional medical model. Um, so I'm, I'm very much excited about that as, as a way to kind of bridge that gap. Like you said, there are doctors in the traditional medical model and you functional people over here. This is actually going to bridge that gap between the two and help support people who, who are, you know, maybe not exposed to the, the functional medicine side. Um, but are, they really want, kind of want to do both. And I'm just, I'm really excited about that bridge. That's very Can cool. I ask a question about how it works in the States? Cause I'm Canadian. So okay. with, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. With, <laughs> Interesting yeah. reaction. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I don't know if that was a good thing or probably a bad thing. It depends uh, on your, it depends on your question. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'm just wondering how it, it works there because it kind of sounds like if you need a specialist like a foot specialist or a hand specialist or a bone specialist or anything like that like you specifically as a specialist i could just come to you and say dr doug please help me um is that how it works in the traditional model of of health um with doctors and everything like that in the states or Mm -hmm. is it more of that bottleneck you were referring to walt earlier of referrals and i'm not sure if you like you have to get a referral from a regular doctor to go see this specialist or that one like how does it actually work there yeah orthopedics is a little bit of a a, uh, a little bit of both and so in in the in the the hmo like you said well in the hmo world and in, in certain insurance networks orthopedic surgeons are considered subspecialists and you have to have a referral that's not true across the board though. And so we are typically considered part of that, you know, primary care tier as well. Um, and so you could potentially, depending on your insurance coverage, go and just you know, pick an orthopedic surgeon and go see an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, wow. We always tell people, you know, check with your insurance uh, because they may not pay for it, um, which is always frustrating. So that's, yeah, so we're kind of in between. Um, and then, yeah, how it works in Canada, I have no idea. I, I have oh, some Canadian... I, well, I know how it works here. Uh, yeah. Everything I... is a referral. Like, you got to go to your yeah. regular doctor, and then if they agree, they can send you for a referral to a specialist, and the process takes months. Like, right now, um, my father-in-law, for example, has been waiting two years for a specialist to check out his back because he has a disc problem. So the average wait time for hip surgeries, things like that, is yeah. years. Yeah, I mean, I, I have I have some colleagues who who operate or they live and operate out of uh, Canada, but they also you know have a practice in the United States. And so when they finish their allotted allowed number of surgeries, then they exit. <laughs> you know, they exit that system and they enter our system and they do yeah. you know basically private cash pay surgery down here. Um, and it's yeah, it's 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 interesting. We can talk about that. I don't know enough about it to talk about it from an educated perspective, but I hear their their complaints enough to know that it's challenging for patients. Very and for challenging. Doctors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for doctors. That's right. Yeah. Challenging yeah. across the board. I'm, I'm also interested in the, how do I describe this? In the way that patients perceive what you're doing. I don't know a particular mm-hmm. word that describes that, but you, you indicated that 
there, that people seem to be responsive to it and, and liking it to a certain extent. Are you running into any challenges where people are saying, oh, this isn't working for me? No, I mean, I, the, the biggest challenge is that we, we don't accept insurance, right? And so people oh, okay. in the United States have, we have gotten to a point where people want insurance to pay for everything and, and we don't accept insurance for reasons I'll, I'll talk about. Um, as far as the actual care, no, I mean, people, they, what they get out of working with us, you know, learning about their genetics, learning, you know, looking at an extensive lab panel and actually figuring out risk factors for heart disease and dementia that they don't get otherwise, you know, micronutrient deficiencies. I mean, these things are so impactful that help them to answer these questions you now of, should I be taking this supplement or that supplement or, you know, what are, you know, having the discussion about hormones for, especially for postmenopausal women who are like, oh, I thought it caused breast cancer. Like, well, no, not, not for most. Um, and, uh, so having that, the time to have the discussion for one and then learning that information, I mean, no, I've never had anybody walk away and be like, well, that was, that was a waste of money. Um, <clears throat> cause even Which if they good. did nothing with yeah, it, it was, really it was still, it was still worth the price of admission. Mm-hmm. Um, but the challenge with, with insurance is, you know, we, we, we make it very clear up front. So we don't, I don't have this conversation that often, but occasionally people will kind of, they'll slip past all of the, the, the guardrails. Um, and they'll get to me and they'll say, well, why, you know, why don't you take insurance? And, and the answer to that is insurance doesn't pay for our services for one, you know, we can, I could submit a claim for a, a code to see a patient. Um, and I would get paid whatever my re my, my negotiated rate as a very small provider would be. And it'd be like 30 bucks, you know, and I, I can't support a practice because I, I spent an hour with my patients and I spent an hour prepping for that visit. I can't spend, I, mean, I can only see how many patients a day. If I spent the whole day, it's five patients, right? So I can't make $150 a day and, and actually even afford to feed my family. So, um, so for that reason, we don't accept insurance for our services, but then so many of the tests, the functional tests that we do are, are rarely covered by insurance. And if they are, they don't cover it completely. Um, and for me to actually bill it through insurance, I would have to have an army of administrative people, which cost money, you know, to try to get it covered for you, which would ultimately then cost more, you know, to actually like get the little bit that your insurance company is going to pay for it. Um, and then there's the labs and the labs is a whole nother racket where the insurance rates for blood labs can be a hundred times the cash pay rate. I mean, it is ludicrous, the markup that insurance companies charge essentially the consumer. And this is all worked out and negotiated with the lab companies. But if I go directly to the lab companies and pay cash, I get the cash pay rates, which then I pass on to my consumers. But if I file it under insurance, then we're paying the insurance rates. And you can imagine what that looks like. So, mm-hmm. so to avoid all of that, we just step away from the insurance model. And I, I tell people, look, there is an accepted level of care that you can get through the insurance model. And it's different in different countries, right? Um, you know, fortunately, the, the level of care that you can get in the United States is still, it's reasonable. It's not bad. Um, it's not optimal, though. And mm-hmm. so that's where I say, look, if you want optimal care, if you want to optimize your body, then that's outside of the insurance model. You, know, you shouldn't expect your insurance to pay for it. You know, if we think about car insurance, right? Like if you get, you buy, I like, like to use the, the analogy of trucks. People love, this is, you know, North Carolina, there's a lot of trucks. So, um, <laughs> You want to buy, you know, an F-150 and you want to get insurance to cover if you have an accident, right? But you don't ask your insurance company to pay for your gas. If you want to jack up your truck, you don't ask your insurance company to pay for, for you know, the suspension and the new tires and the new wheels. So it's the same thing with your body, right? If you want to optimize your body, that's that's a that's a surplus, right? You got to you got to invest in that um, and you don't have to. 
Um, mm. but I, I think you should. And I think we all should, uh, because when you, after you go through a program like this, you recognize, okay, this is how I prevent myself from needing those other services that I have insurance for. Yeah. Prevention is, is an interesting topic all by itself because first of all, the way it uh, is prevented often in the mainstream medical, uh, community, but also because of the way it's presented in the alternative communities and you're, you're somewhere in the bridge in the middle. I'm not sure exactly where to, right. to place yours, <laughs> but, but, but it, nevertheless, you're dealing with the same general issue. In other words, how do you actually approach it? Like the, I, I can think of a couple of uh, jokes that come to mind and, and they aren't all that funny now that I think about it. Uh, but the, you know, the, the one joke being that, uh, they, they talk about healthcare, but they the hospitals are full of sick people, you know, that kind of thing. How much are we actually talking about health here? I, th I, I think that's the first question that always comes to my mind. Are, are we talking about health or are we talking about disease prevention? Because to me, they're not the same thing. They're, they're not. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about where our system has gone, you know, we don't, we don't really cultivate health through our healthcare system. We treat disease and we have prevention models, but they're, they're very weak. Um, and one of the arguments I get for insurance is, is say, well, you know, shouldn't my insurance company want me to be healthier? And my answer is not really. So think about what an insurance company is. You know, they are, they, they sell a product, they make profit and they have shareholders, right? right. I mean, it's just, they make widgets like every other widget maker. Um, and their, their widgets make a lot of money. Um, and if you think about what the journey is for a client in that widget company, they are insurance companies generally will have a, a, a customer for three to four years. So they don't actually care. You know, if you're 20, they don't care that they're preventing dementia when you're 60. That's irrelevant to them. Mm -hmm. It's irrelevant to their shareholders. Not that they don't maybe emotionally care. Sure. Um, but it does, but that's not, the, money that's not the business yeah. model. Right. And, right. and same thing with the way that our, our, our reimbursement is set up for providers. If somebody came to see me as an orthopedic surgeon and they didn't need surgery, you know, I get paid to operate. So that's kind of a wasted visit for me. I mean, I can bill a code for that, but again, like if I'm spending more than five minutes with them, that's a wasted visit for me. And it's really unfortunate, but even somebody like myself who clearly has some, some ethics around talking <laughs> to patients and explaining things, I still struggle with that. You know, I got to get through my 50 to 60 patients in an eight hour block and that yeah, you start doing the math on living. that. Yeah, you're right. You start doing the math on that and you're like, whoa, that's tight. That's a lot of, that's mm -hmm. a lot of patience. And it, it is, is a lot of patience, you know? And so now on, in the way that I see people, you know, I have probably max four or five patients a day. Wow. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time together and they have constant access to me. You know, my, my patients have, uh, we have a, a chat feature through our electronic medical record and they can access me anytime. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. I'm going to text them back at three in the morning, but, but still, <laughs> if they have a question, they could drop it in and they don't get back to them. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the kind of care that I would, I like to be able to provide. Um, is that's that scalable? Yeah. I mean, is that scalable? I think it, I think it actually is, but how do you actually, how do you create a system where you could do that on a broad scale? Mm. Um, and it, it's an interesting question that I haven't really thought about because my practice is very small. <laughs> Cause I can remember when I was like four or five, it was at the tail end of the period where you could still get a doctor coming out for a house call. So I can remember being three or four years old and the doctor coming to our house. And then that stopped because it was right at the transition point where the medical practices wouldn't do that anymore. And now you had to go to them. 
And yeah. from that point on, the, the you know the the appointments got smaller and smaller and smaller, and they're trying to squeeze more and more in. So to actually be talking to somebody who has found a way to spend time to talk with a patient, that's a, that's a throwback. That that goes back fifty yeah. or more years. That's really something. Well, and, and it's funny the irony, right? That I'm actually going into people people's homes through telehealth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's actually a, it's kind of a house call, you know. Yeah. And, and it's and it's fun. So uh, you know, I'm sitting with them in their kitchen. In, in their home environment, they're comfortable, right. um, and we're having a conversation about things that really matter, like how much sleep did you get last night? You know, what do your mm. sleep behaviors look like? When do you stop eating before you go to bed? You know, what do you think about when you wake up at four a.m.? You know, these things that you, your doctor is not going to ask you because they don't have time. Yeah, yeah, it's not necessarily that they don't care; it's that they don't have the time yeah. to like well, spend with you. For sure. And that's part of the feedback that I get from, from physicians to say, well, yeah, like I'm interested in those things too. You know, like I want to talk about those things, but I can't. And, and I say, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that you don't care. I'm not saying that you're providing bad care either, you know, and, and I get this, this feedback, you know, especially from the OBGYN world when I start talking about the differences and how I do hormone replacement versus how they do hormone replacement. I'm not saying you're a bad doctor or that you're doing it wrong. I'm just saying that the philosophy is different. You know, you're following, you're following the guidelines from your college and you're, you know, you're, those guidelines are based off of what they're FDA approved for, not necessarily what the research says that they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a different philosophy. Um, yeah. and so yeah, that, that, that negative feedback is frustrating because a lot of times they just get defensive and it's mostly because I think that they know that they want to do it differently, but they can't. Yeah. Do you see that changing? No, <laughs> no. Okay. No, I mean, I have, I have a pretty, pretty pessimistic view of, of where our healthcare system is headed. Hmm. Um, I think that we're going to see more and more people like myself. I mean, we saw, I, I forget what the actual uh, statistic was, but, you know, over the last two years, the number of physicians that have left the traditional medical model or have, you know, er, early retired, uh, it, it blew my mind. And I wish I could remember what the number was, but it was a very, very large number. And, and we're already facing a physician shortage. So what is that going to do to the system? You know, and I'm guilty of this too, right? Cause I walked away. Um, what is that going to do to the system? It's going to make the, the deficiencies in care worse. Um, sure. and it's going to make it worse in areas where care was already not available. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to make the, the, the care in the current system, uh, worse. But the, the plus side is, is that as more of us are creating businesses like mine or joining together to create, you know, larger organizations, we're going to create a tier of care that is going to be more broadly available to help people yes. to, to truly get to where they want to be. So I think it's going to be a rocky road, but I think we're going to get to a different place. It's going to look a whole lot different 10 years from now than it did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely true. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, I, I want to ask you something a little bit too about the, the actual treatments you you do. You talked about um, hormone replacement. You made reference earlier to osteoporosis and, and other bone-related diseases. Uh, first thing I want to ask you about, this may sound out of the blue, I've heard a truism, and I don't know if it's true. Is it true that most women have osteoporosis when they get past 50 <laughs> or so? Um, I mean, in my world, it sure is. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, st- the statistics are, are actually are, are really concerning, um, and I don't think the statistics are even actually paint an accurate picture. And so the reality is, is that one in two women in their lifetime will experience a fragility fracture. Wow. One in two. Wow. Right? That's 50%. Um, one in four men. And we, a lot of times we don't think about men having right. poor bone health, but it's true. And the reality is, is that it's going to get worse and worse as we get older because our bone health 
Yeah, if you look at why people lose bone, it's there are a lot of reasons, but a lot of them are happening in a lot of our population already. Mm -hmm. And so we we reach peak bone mass very early in our life. So, you know, early 20s, you reach your peak bone mass. And so I don't know any 22 year old woman who is thinking about getting adequate calcium and vitamin D and eating well. I mean, I, I mean, maybe again, this is the world I live in, but you know, how many of my patients that are in that age group are chronically dieting, have eating disorders, you know, getting, you know, they're getting really poor nutrition. Um, they're trying to stay as skinny as possible. Um, and unfortunately that's going to have a huge impact and it's been like that for decades. So this is not new. And so now what I'm seeing is that women, to answer your question, women, as they go through menopause and they lose natural estrogen, testosterone and progesterone, they will see a precipitous drop in, in bone mineral density. That's only a big problem if your starting point isn't very good. The, the more you drop the starting point, the bigger that problem is. And so women are seeing, I think, I think fragility fractures earlier. Um, and even before, I mean, the recommended age for screening is 65, which is woefully too late. But even before they go through menopause, we're starting to see, you know, hip fractures and spine fractures and, and women that have never been screened that don't know. And they haven't even gone through menopause yet. So yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. Um, so do all women have it? No, but a lot of women have it. And now that you mentioned that uh, it can affect men too, now I'm, I've got my eyebrows up. I'm thinking, okay, how much time do I spend walking out in the sun? Oh, yeah, well, I'm out there for an hour a day in my shorts. Well, that helps some. Okay, that's that's good. What, what else can I maybe, be doing? Walt, maybe, Yeah, well, where, where are you, Walt? I'm in Connecticut. You're in Connecticut? Yeah, you're not getting any vitamin D in Connecticut, Walt, even if you're in the sun. What? Well, no, now, now I'm really, away. really enthralled here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it all, that really only works if you're the closer you get to the equator. Um, no, it's, it's really hard to get enough vitamin D naturally. Um, and there are so many reasons why your people don't absorb calcium, uh, adequately. So, yeah, I mean, it is, again, this is something that that's why I'm so excited about, about pushing this out because it is a massive problem. Um, and there are a lot of things you can do that are very simple. And those are the things that we're going to try to push out again through, through social media channels and just, you know, get, get the word out. Um, because this is one of those spaces where, you know, just like you said, like you're an educated guy, uh, but to think that you're going to be in Connecticut and the UV rays are going to actually produce vitamin D on your skin uh, for the limited time that you're actually outdoors. It's just not true. Um, I mean, I test vitamin D in all my patients and I've never seen it optimal in anybody that isn't supplementing. So that wow. raises the obvious question. What's the best way to supplement it? Yeah. So, uh, in general, these are not specific recommendations, <laughs> but in general, um, no, I mean, the, the research right now is pretty good that if you consume vitamin D3, and this is just very clear on an over the counter supplement, D3, they're both writing it down. Yep. D3 and, and vitamin K2, take them together to increase the absorption of vitamin D. And then the vitamin K will actually help not only to absorb the vitamin D, but it'll help to put the calcium that, that you're going to increase the absorption of in the right place. Cause there's some fear that if you're taking calcium as a supplement, that it can go into your arteries, which is true. Uh, but if you take vitamin K, it can help to prevent that and actually potentially reverse that. Wow. Hmm. Okay. And then, uh, the calcium itself, there's, there's a lot of controversy about mm -hmm. what forms of calcium to take and how to take it and so forth. So what's, what's the, uh, recommended yeah. scoop there? Yeah. The, the scoop there is that there's this, uh, there's some good evidence to say that calcium hydroxyapatite, um, and you can just loosely spell that and, and Google will correct you. Um, but hydroxyapatite, that's the form that it exists in your bones. So if you take that same form and supplement, there's good evidence to say that it'll actually improve your bone mineral density better than taking any of the other forms of calcium. Hmm. 
Okay. So there, so there is actually a reason to be concerned about some of the other methods that you can take. Calcium. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so if you look at things like calcium carbonate, I mean, it's just not absorbed at all, right? It's like eating chalk. Um, it, it doesn't really do much other than go out the other end. Um, but other forms of calcium, like citrate, is, is reasonably well absorbed, and that's generally what's recommended by bone health experts. Um, but the question is then where does it go? Because uh, mm. we don't want to calcify arteries. We don't want to calcify other tissues because um, calcium in tissues causes inflammation. Mm, right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I, I can see how this becomes a very complex topic in a very, very short period of time. And, and that's the challenge because there, there are yeah. some sources for information out there. But if you don't if you don't have the right context and if you don't know that it's right for you, how do you know that you're doing the right thing? You know, and so I see people come in that are on all, all over the place on the spectrum of supplements Some people that are taking, you know, they're taking way too much calcium um, or people that are so afraid of it that they're not taking any. Uh, and then they've also made the recommendation of, well, I'm going to eat a plant based diet for my heart and I'm going to do this. and I'm going to do that. And they're not eating any protein at all. And they're just withering away <laughs> thinking, mm. ah, stop. No, let's let's fix this, please. We can we can make a, a change here. Um, so it is it's hard. To, it's really hard to know how to put the dots together based on what your goals are. Mm. Yeah, Until you but, do like the backup of what I assume is what you guys do at OHH is that's all exactly the blood right. work yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Get all, get all the information and then figure out who you are. Right. And, and so, okay, well, you know, this is, this is your lifestyle. These are your goals. These are your genetics. This is your extensive blood panel. And this is what you look like on these functional panels. Okay. Now let's put together the map. Um, and yeah, wow. and that's, it's, that's why it takes an, it takes me an hour to prep for these, these results reviews because it's, it, it's a lot of information, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it comes together in our health report, which right now it's in this, this report just keeps changing, you know, week by week. But, uh, how do you put all that information together for somebody in a way that, that they can understand it without a PhD? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the challenge. Uh, and I think we do a really good job of it. Um, but we're always trying to make it better. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's mentally challenging for me, but I, I love it. I'm thinking about my wife right now because, um, she's, uh, in retirement age, she's, uh, 68 now. And she has been told that she is calcium deficient in her bone structure and nobody among her friends were surprised. Um, <laughs> and of course she was told basically, you know, take the calcium and, and vitamin D. And the first thing that comes up with her is she hates taking pills. Uh, she, yeah. she actually had Graves disease at one point, hyperthyroidism. And, and, uh, they told her she was going to be on medication forever, or she was going to have to have surgery or have it burned out or whatever. And, uh, it got to the point where the dosage was so high. They said, it's an absolute guarantee. You're going to have to make a decision. And we didn't buy a word of it. We didn't, we didn't buy into it at all. And, uh, then about a year later, they started cutting the dosage and they cut the dosage more and they cut it more. And they said, well, we're going to have to take you off a bit and see how you do. And that was like three years ago. So she beat it. She actually got right. her goal. She yeah. got off that, that, uh, that pill merry-go-round. But because of that, especially with the way calcium tends to come, she has an aversion to taking calcium. So yeah. like, are there alternatives for her that, right? Yeah. Actually... It comes in these, in these big horse pills, right? Yeah. yeah which yeah, is like, like the last thing she's interested yeah. in taking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I get that. Um, so other alternatives, yeah, get it through your diet. That's actually the way we want you to get it. Mm. Um, but you got to do the math and you got to make sure that you're actually getting it through your diet. And then you also have to make sure that your gut is functioning the way that you, that you want it to, which is to actually absorb things. Um, and so that's, again, that's where the testing comes in. Because you don't, you really don't know. I mean, some people that have a significant gut dysfunction have a lot of symptoms, but a lot of times you don't know. Like you don't know that you don't have good hydrochloric acid and that you're not breaking things down and absorbing calcium. Um, and so that, those are the things that we look at. 
Okay. So, so you guys draw all of those conclusions. Sorry, Walt. Um, no. of like whether your gut is actually absorbing what it's mm-hmm. supposed to. Wow. Yeah. Through, That's an through our, our health optimization programs, we do that a little bit. We do more of like a gut screen and see unless people have a lot of symptoms and then we can tweak that. But for our osteoporosis folks, yeah, it's, it's, we do a, we do a, a pretty full on approach to looking at, at the gut function, uh, gut permeability or leaky gut, as a lot of people call it. Um, and then a little bit of food intolerance early on, and then we can expand that later if we need to. Okay. But it's definitely something that needs consultation. It's something that you, you have to kind of get a one-to-one screening. Yeah. You just, you, it's really hard. I mean, A, it's hard to, you could order the functional. Well, it's not even true. Sometimes the functional test you can get on your own depends on which test you're talking about, but then what do you do with it? Right. How do you interpret mm. these? And they're, they're, it's really complex. You know, that's why, that's why I did two fellowships after my, <laughs> after my, my other fellowship. Um, cause it is complex. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of, uh, there's ambiguity in, in how the results are delivered. And then what do you do with it? How do you actually treat it? I can see this is the, no wonder you're busy. I mean, it's very clear to be just on that alone. And we haven't even touched this hormone uh, replacement or whatever that is. And we yeah. haven't even touched yeah. that yet. So yeah. yeah, it's very clear why you're busy, but why don't we touch that part? Tell us about yeah, the, sure. the hormone part. You know, what, what's that? Yeah. So this is something, you know, early on, I thought, gosh, there's no way that I want to do this. I just don't know enough about it. It scares me, right? Like it scares most physicians. Um, I don't, I don't want to, I just don't want to deal with it. Um, and then I started working with patients and realized, you know, I can't rely on, I can't rely on the OBGYN or primary care docs to, to understand it or to deal with it. And then the more I learned, I realized that, you know, where there is just so much fear and dogma in the world of hormone, I don't even want to call it replacement in the traditional model because it's not, it's symptom management, um, that I, I have to do it, you know? So then I went and got more training. And so now, um, I do a fair amount of, uh, bioidentical hormone replacement, particularly in, in, uh, perimenopausal, postmenopausal women, but also now for premenopausal women too, because as it turns out, you know, the hormone problem doesn't start as you go through menopause. Um, and then also for men and testosterone replacement therapy. And talk about why someone wants to pursue this. What, what's the motivation behind it? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's, it's different, uh, for gen- different genders. So men, we'll talk about men first because they're easier. So for men, there is a, 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 um, predictable decline in testosterone as we age. You could argue whether or not that's natural. Um, uh, but it goes down as we get older. Um, but the problem is, is the starting point, just like women and, and peak bone density, the starting point for testosterone is getting lower and lower decade after decade. Our, our culture in, in society and our environment, is all kind of against testosterone and that's a long conversation, but basically testosterone levels are dropping, dropping, dropping. And, um, so now as you start to lose your testosterone, as you get older, it was already low to begin with. I mean, I see low testosterone in men in their twenties. And so, you know, where, where are they going to go? Um, so it goes down and what people notice when they have low testosterone is really it's, it's, fatigue, it's brain fog, it's lack of vitality, lack of competitive edge and competitive nature. Um, those are the things that I, I like to treat testosterone for, or testosterone deficiency for. Um, other things that you hear a lot, it's what people talk about, you know, lack of libido and erectile dysfunction and those kinds of things. And yeah, that's true too. But, but really what I find men are looking for, it's that it's the edge, it's the, um, it's the vitality. I think it's probably like the best word to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, for women, you know, we'll just focus on postmenopause to keep it, uh, to keep it clear. But for postmenopausal women, there is a, obviously a, just a, it's like 
their hormones drop off a cliff, right? So you go through menopause, your hormones fall off the cliff. You have essentially no estrogen, um, very little progesterone and, and very little testosterone. And again, you could argue that that is natural as is aging kind of, but I like to look at aging as a disease and loss of hormones is a symptom of that disease. If you want to fight that disease, which I want to fight that disease, if you want to fight that disease, you need to optimize your hormones. So when you look at it from that lens, then what do you do with a postmenopausal woman who has no estrogen? Well, you want to optimize her estrogen, right? I want to put it, I'm going to put her estrogen levels back to where she was before she went through menopause because it can help her with her symptoms of menopause, which is what estrogen is FDA regulated for. But also because if you look at the literature, it can help to prevent bone loss in menopause. It can help to keep your lean muscle, mostly testosterone, but testosterone can help to maintain your lean muscle mass. It helps with skin quality. It does all the same things that I just said for men and women. Um, progesterone helps with sleep. Progesterone helps with your, the cells that make bone to keep them going and it balances your estrogen. Um, it can help keep your vessels, your arteries flexible. So it can help prevent heart disease, prevent stroke, prevent dementia, uh, prevent diabetes. I mean, all of this stuff is in the literature, but the FDA says, no, 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 no. You can't use it for that. Wow. And so bioidentical hormone then is we are using these things off label for symptoms of menopause, uh, which is legal. It's ethical. Um, I think it's probably more ethical. Um, but it's not, that's why, that's why most doctors will say, well, you know, we don't, we don't use estrogen for osteoporosis. And I agree. You don't use estrogen for osteoporosis, but I do use estrogen if I want to help somebody to prevent bone loss from osteo, from, from menopause. Right. So that's just how you spin it. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I do that. Um, and my patients who are, that had dysfunctional hormones, once they're optimized, happiest patients. They're really happy. Wow. Mm. So since I'm, I'm on the male side, I'll let Jody bring it in from the female side. I'm on the male <laughs> side. Um, since I'm on the male side, vitality, that, that definitely sounds appealing to me. I'm 65 and uh, vitality mm -hmm. isn't what it was, you know, 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago. So what can I, what, what, what can I, uh, if I go through your program, what can I look forward to? Yeah. So again, I, what I notice in men who start on testosterone replacement is really it's, it's that energy. It's the drive. You know, the fact that I, I want to, I want to get up. I want to do my work or whatever my tasks are. I want to work out, you know, and I'm going to, I would tell somebody your age, Hey, you know, you, you really got to actually do resistance training. We have to fight that loss of muscle mass. As we get older, it gets harder and harder to maintain muscle mass and muscle mass is our longevity organ. Um, so you got to do more and testosterone gives you that oomph to go do more. Okay. Well, that, that's the short, that, that's the elevator sales pitch right there. That's right. <laughs> yeah. How about from the female side, Joe, do you want to take a crack at that? Well, I feel like there's, there's a couple of things that I was thinking about. I'm not post menopause yet. Not there, but it's, I wasn't going to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man. No, I'm only 37. Um, so pre still like working in the trying to have a baby scenario. It's so interesting, Walt, that this has come up like fertility right? and hormones or yeah. whatever week after week we've talked yeah. about this. Um, mostly like off, off screen. I just, I, I, I pelt the, the individuals we have about fertility, but here we <laughs> go. We're just going to do this live. Um, but one thing I thought is interesting about that post menopause, I know tons of ladies who are 
in that space, um, one friend I have who her doctor is saying her hormones don't match with her going through menopause, but she hasn't had that cycle for years. And they're like, Oh, we'll just wait. It's kind of like, Oh, we just, we'll just wait another six months and do another test. Like I'm sure it'll show up. And she's like, what's going on with my body? And I was just talking to somebody last night who was having problems with, all of these things now in, in menopause. So I think it's interesting the way that you phrased it. It's sort of natural, but not, not exactly natural that these jump off a cliff. And and I want to know more about that. And I want to know more about the, the premenopausal and, and uh, because I think we're just really women in in general, myself included, especially not educated on what our hormones are supposed to be, what we're supposed to do with them, what a period is supposed to be like, what any of this is supposed to be like. It's like, don't talk about it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, I mean, so to answer the first part of your question, you know, that, that natural, hormone change. Um, if you think about the life cycle of, of any, any animal that has, you know, that has a menstrual cycle and that eventually dies, um, there is going to be this point at which they stop having menstrual cycles and then, you know, then they go through the, the remainder of their life and then, and then they die. So yeah. it's natural. But again, if you look at aging as a disease and not as an, an inevitable, um, then it's a symptom of a disease. And so it's a different perspective. And so I would say that you have a symptom of aging, which means that your ovaries have, that are telling me that your ovaries are no longer making estrogen. That cycle has been disrupted. So then what do we do about it? You know, we can accept it and then we can know that there are some things that are predictably, predictably going to happen, like the loss of, of, of bone mineral density, the loss of bone quality, you know, your muscle mass, your skin's going to change, like all those things that we know that happen in, in postmenopausal women, predictably mm-hmm. because they don't have estrogen. Um, so. That's the way that the traditional medical model looks at it. And that's why the FDA also says estrogen is only FDA approved for symptoms of menopause, not for any of those other things that I just mentioned, uh, because they're only interested in helping you get through the menopause. Right. As far as premenopausal women, boy, it is a, um, it's a really interesting space, which again, like I never thought going through orthopedic surgery training, you know, as I'm learning how to fix bones and in plates and screws and, you know, big intramedullary nails, um, you know, that I'm going to have a practice where I'm talking to 20 year old women about their cycles, mm. you know, yeah. <laughs> um, never thought that would happen. <laughs> but the reality is, is that it's, it is important. And this is not a knock on the OBGYN community, but the traditional approach to, to women that are having dysfunctional cycles frequently is go on birth control. And we're just going to make your cycles work based off of this pill that we're giving you. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that the, that birth control as it's given, um, with the synthetic progesterone and the estrogen that's given, if it has estrogen in it, um, they're synthetic and they, they have consequences, you know, the increased risk of blood clot, the increased risk of all kinds of other things that people don't talk about. Um, and whenever I see a woman that's on an oral birth control pill, I get her off of it right away and say, look, if this is for contraception, let's use something else. If this is for irregular periods, let's figure out why you're having irregular periods. Like this is the functional medicine, like the root of functional medicine, which is why do you have the symptom to begin with? You know, and maybe you do need progesterone, but let's use, let's use a, uh, let's use a bioidentical progesterone that you take as a capsule. You know, it, you know, for women that are cycling, very rarely do they need estrogen. Um, you know, but for the, the rare of those that do, you know, let's do it in a way that you're actually getting the estradiol and the estriol that your body would naturally make. So your body knows what to do with it. Um, and so it is, it's definitely much more challenging. It takes a lot of time. And I think that's part of the issue too, is, 
it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of trial and error. And, and when you're doing that in a traditional office, you just can't do it. You don't have so time. You know, somebody comes in and right, they're having heavy bleeding or their, you know, their periods are dysfunctional or whatever, you know, the bad PMS symptoms. And it's just, you write a script for oral birth, you know, control and, and you're done. Yep. Yeah. So. Or the depot shot. That's a big one here. Right. Well, and, and again, like that's the, that's the same progestin. That's the same synthetic progesterone that has all of these known potential risks. And yet that's the go-to. Yeah. Um, cause it's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. I, I'm really intrigued though by, by what you're doing because really from my perspective, this is, this is my way of looking at it. From my perspective, what you're doing goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show. We talked about how the medical community is resistant to change and all about, you know, all that kind of stuff. But really, since the medical community is ostensibly based on science, science is about curiosity. I mean, it has kind of evolved to the point where science is all about covering your butts and, and, you know, making sure that nobody can come along and, and steal your cheese. But really science is about being curious and trying to understand and follow and investigate, right. you know, acquire the data and then understand the data and see what theory you can create out of it. And then you find your theory doesn't work. And so you get some more data and you learn some more. That's what science is all about. And that's right. more along the line of what you're doing now, which is really that, commendable. That's actually the scientific method. You're right. Yeah. Ask a question. Try to find the answer. And then if you think you found the answer, ask the same question and see if you can find the same answer again. If you find the same answer again, then maybe move forward with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Not this like, Ooh, I think I have an answer. Let's do something with it. You know, like that, that's the world of nutrition, which is let's, let's like come up with a, a theory and then let's just impart it to the world. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you skipped a whole lot of steps in there. Um, and that's what we've been dealing with, you know, for the last 70 years in the world of nutrition. You know, it's mm -hmm. like some, 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 you know, self-proclaimed expert has a theory that, and they have very powerful influences in, in government. And then all of a sudden we have policy, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, well, well wait, <laughs> like go back to the whole, uh, the, the diet heart hypothesis. You know, why did we think that dietary fat was bad for you? It was a single guy who had a theory that was actually opposed by most and created, you know, government regulations that just, you know, I, I think really started the obesity epidemic. Mm. We could probably do a whole show on that, but unfortunately, yeah. we, don't have we should. Yeah, yeah, we don't. You're right. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll arrange Next that. Time. I, Next I, time. I, I'll tell you about something after the show that, that actually could lead to that because uh, I have an idea going in my head, but we'll bring that up another time. For the moment, we have to kind of draw this to a close. And before we draw it to a close, we need to get some information from you because undoubtedly there are listeners listening and saying, hmm. I should check into this more. How do they check into this more? more? Yeah. So uh, easiest way is just to check out our website. So we're at optimalhumanhealth.com. Um, and on that website, we have uh, an area for blogs, which we were trying to write and get as much up as we can. Obviously, it's a lot, it's a lot of different information topics. Mm. So so we're doing the best we can to get as much information there. You can follow us on social. So uh, these will all be, I'm sure, in the, in the show notes. But my name and the name of the company. Um, and then, uh, we also have a new website for the bone health side, which is optimalbonehealth.com. Um, and so that is very specific to bone. And, and our goal then is of course, to educate people through that platform as well. If you want to learn about how you work with us, just go to those websites, you fill out a form. And typically we onboard people by having a, an initial interview. So I actually just meet with everybody that wants to work with us and talk about whether or not we're a good fit. Very nice. Wonderful. Jody, I don't know about you. I learned a ton today. 
Yeah. It's fascinating. And I, I love that this keeps coming back around because I think it, I think it is a huge component and I'm so excited to see this shift, uh, in, in doctors saying, I want to do more the way that you are, Dr. Doug. I think that's so beautiful and yeah. I can't wait for that to catch on in Canada. Uh, not that they don't care, but just that they're taking a different road like you are, or maybe, you know, practices like yours start to open up internationally. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been fun. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us. And, and we will include in the show notes how to reach uh, both the Bone website. You'll have to give me the other one, too, because I don't think I have that one. Sure. So yeah, I'll no get problem. the information from you so we can get that into the show notes. But thank you once again. And uh, Jody is not going to be able to join us next week. She has a pressing engagement, but she'll be joining us the following week. So we'll look forward to that. And uh, we will have a guest next week. We'll give you some more information about that. But in the meantime, we'll just say thank you very much for listening. And we will see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. 